Good morning. It's good to be here this morning, even if we do have to be masked, as Ford already talked about. Um, I do have a question for the kids this morning, though. Do you know that your parents have had homework this summer? Anybody aware of that? Yes. We got one thumbs up over here. Um, Their homework was to be reading the books of the minor prophets before they come here on Sunday. I'm not, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands as to who has actually been reading the Minor Prophets before each Sunday. But kids, I would love to have some help for if, just in case any parent didn't read, can any of you tell me the story of Jonah? What happened to Jonah? Jack, in the back. Thank you, Jack. I appreciate that. Uh, it makes the rest of my sermon make some sense, so that's good. Um, Jonah's a very familiar book, right? A lot of us heard this story growing up, or if you haven't, you've encountered this book before. We're going to be exploring this in a little bit of a different way this morning, but for the kids, what I would like you guys to listen for is what Jonah needs. We're going to be talking today about what Jonah needs. And if you can answer the question, what Jonah needs after church to Ford, he might have something for you. And I kind of feel bad because we do this sometimes with the kids. Adults, if you can answer the question, what Jonah needs afterwards to Ford, he also might have something for you. I don't know how deep his pockets are this morning with candy. But, um, so anybody can do that. What Jonah needs, that's the question we're answering today. And... So as, as I said, we're spending uh, some time this summer in the Minor Prophets. And after spending time reading through these last couple of weeks in the Minor Prophets, coming to the book of Jonah feels a bit like a seismic shift. It's a completely different type of book than the ones before it. Just for example, in Obadiah last week, all we're given is the words he preached. All we're given is his prophecy or his vision. If we trimmed Jonah down to just his prophecy to Nineveh, it would be one sentence long. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That would be the entire book of Jonah. And so my first question is, why are we given this narrative? Why does a book of the Bible end as this one does, as we just saw in the reading, with a question? Do you have a right to be angry? It's this final scene that has really struck me as I've been spending time in this book. In many ways, this scene is the whole narrative of Jonah condensed into one conversation between Jonah and God. On one side, you have the anger of Jonah, and on the other, you have the compassion of God. Do you have a right to be angry? I've come to believe that the book of Jonah is an immersion into the human heart. And really, it's one human's heart, and that's Jonah's. But in Jonah's heart, we can see a reflection 
of our own. We begin to see ourselves in the decisions that he makes, and really it's not a flattering picture. Lots of people know the story of Jonah, but I think few people really experience its edge. Is that better? All right. Sorry about that. Um, So lots of people know the story of Jonah, but I think few really experience its edge. I believe it's written in a way that for those who have ears to hear, it becomes a mirror for our own hearts. It throws open the doors of the deep places inside of us and sheds light on the cobwebs and the dusty corners. It isn't a flattering picture, but ultimately it is a good one because it opens up our hearts afresh to the compassion of God. So that's where we're going this morning. But first, I want to say a word about this tricky term, heart. Um, This last week, I spent uh, a week uh, at a retreat for those who were in the ordination process in our diocese. Um, And first, I just want to say it was a beautiful ministering time. Our church family here at Redeemer is part of this wonderful extended church family with very wise, humble, and loving leaders. Multiple people came up to me and asked, how is Redeemer doing? And they actually wanted to know the answer to that question. They wanted to pray for us. They wanted wanted to minister to us. It was a beautiful time. I encourage you to, if you have any opportunity to attend an event at that level, just to to do so. God's doing some incredible things uh, in our little corner of his kingdom. But one of the themes that came up for me in this retreat was this idea of the heart. And in a discussion on our liturgy, it was made clear that our liturgy is all about the heart. The language of our hearts and our minds comes up all the time. Another speaker made the point that the heart in Scripture is this all-encompassing term referring to the thoughts and the emotions, the desires, the will, the affections. The heart refers to those deep places inside of us where our dreams, our history, our desires, and our fears all battle for dominion. It's about who we are. It's about who and what we worship. It's about who and what we love and the choices that we make. And scripture says that our hearts are broken. They're twisted. They're distorted. There's a fragility and a weakness to the human condition that all of us revolt against. As image bearers of God, I believe we all long for and know we're meant for goodness. But like Paul, we all, all end up in the tension of doing what we don't want to do and not doing what we want to do. And I think it's this broken condition that the book of Jonah invites us to examine. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be jumping around through the book of Jonah. So just open to the book of Jonah, starting at the beginning in chapter 1. And this first, vote, this first verse of Jonah drops us right into the action. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Readers at this point have a certain expectation of what Jonah is going to do. Throughout the rest of the Hebrew Bible, when a faithful prophet hears the word of the Lord, what follows often is an exact parallel verse. Sometimes this is called the command fulfillment structure. 
God says, go and do X, Y, and Z. Next verse. So the prophet goes and does X, Y, and Z. But that is not what we get with Jonah. God said, arise and go to Nineveh. Verse 3. But Jonah arose and fled to Tarshish. Fled from the presence of the Lord. The context makes clear. Early readers would catch this broken pattern. They would understand the irony in this statement. This is the prophet of God. Already spoken of favorably back in 2 Kings. And here he is not prophesying about God. We have other accounts of prophets who argued with God at this point when called to do something. But we don't have any fleeing from his presence like this. Moses is a famous example whose heart needed to be convinced. Isaiah needed his lips purified in the presence of heaven. Jeremiah said he was too young, but Jonah didn't even do that. He arose and he fled. Instead of engaging with God, he disconnected with God. Instead of letting God into those deep places of his heart, he hid them from God. Like his forefather, Adam, he covered himself and tried to run. The great tension of this book is why? What is Jonah thinking? The answer has to do with Jonah's heart. A pastor of mine liked to say that the greatest privilege anyone can have is sitting in the presence of God. Jonah had that privilege. He was a recipient of a transcendent God stepping into human history. The mind of God communicating to the mind of Jonah, and he fled from that privilege. His heart couldn't handle this call. Said simply, he just didn't want to do what God told him to do. Jonah needs a new heart. But so do you and I. Have you ever not wanted to do what God asked you to do? You may not carry the status of prophet, but you do carry the status of a son or a daughter of God, a citizen of his kingdom. Have you ever given up that privileged position? What were the forces and the movements of your heart that led you to make that decision, to step away from the presence of God? In the case of Jonah, we aren't told the answer to that just yet. Instead, we're told Jonah's flight led him to a boat on the sea, heading to Tarshish. We're told in verse 4 that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and the mariners were afraid and hurling cargo overboard, praying to their gods. And then we're given another insight into Jonah. While the other men on the boat were crying out, running around, seeking to save themselves in the boat, in the midst of all that danger and difficulty, Jonah is asleep. He's deaf to their cries of help, ignorant of their need for relief. He has completely turned a blind eye and centered himself and his comfort over and against the safety and care of those around him. He knows the God of the wind and waves, and he's asleep. One person I had dinner with at this retreat works with the homeless population in Austin. He painted a vivid picture of the need for more homeless ministry in our cities. He said, the homelessness problem is only getting worse, and that soon we may have to literally step over the homeless to enter our church buildings. What would the condition of our heart be like if that was a reality? Are we also asleep 
in the midst of a disaster? Jonah needs a new heart. So do you and I. But there's another character in the story. One whose heart is full of compassion. Jonah, despite his lack of desire to do so, becomes once again the mouthpiece of God. When he's awakened by the sailors, he tells them that he worships the God of Israel. And then there's this incredible moment that that should encourage all of our hearts, regardless of how twisted or distorted they may be. After picking Jonah up and tossing him into the sea, we're told these words, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Their hearts went from worshiping their own gods to worshiping the Lord. In God's compassion, he used Jonah's stubbornness and brokenness to bring more people to himself. As Martin Luther said, God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And this is good news for each and every one of us. The brokenness in your heart is no match for the compassion of God. There is no comparison. The mission of God moves on despite our fumbling and our bumbling. And God's compassion is so great that it actually includes his fumbling and bumbling stubborn prophet in this moment. Jonah is saved in a miraculous way. Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of that fish three days and three nights. Now, our our modern minds don't really know what to do with that sentence. (laughs) We can't fathom a situation where someone is in a belly of a fish and somehow survives. For something like this to work, it's, it's a miracle. It's not a repeatable, testable phenomenon. Depends entirely on the compassion of God reaching down into human history and plucking Jonah from the depths. Our modern mindset wrestling with this part of the story, though, can actually get in the way of what I think is the larger point. I don't think the original readers would have had arguments about what kind of fish it was or the oxygen levels that he would have needed. Not because they were ignorant to the needs of survival in the ocean, but because they saw this part of the story for what it was. This is Jonah at rock bottom. His descent begins in chapter 1. Right after fleeing from the presence of the Lord, the author gives us the detail that he went down to Joppa. We're then told he went down into the boat and that he was sleeping down in the inner part of the boat. Jonah has been going downhill since verse 2. And now he's crashed into the bottom. This understanding is only strengthened by Jonah's prayer, which he says, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. This is his rock bottom. That phrase, rock bottom, comes from the addiction recovery literature. It's an experience that many feel is necessary for true healing of addiction. It's a moment of clarity, a realization of need. It's what happens when we come face to face with those cobwebs and dusty corners of our own heart. It's when the mirror of life is turned toward us and we see ourselves clearly. Rock bottom for those in recovery is a gift. Maybe not in the moment, but looking back on it, it can be seen as a catalyst for life change. It's here and really only here that Jonah turns back to God. In his repentance, he falls back on the book of Psalms. 
The prayer in chapter 2 references Psalm 18, Psalm 69, Psalm 42, Psalm 120, and many more. And again, I think we can relate to Jonah in this moment. It's when we reach rock bottom, when we reach the end of our rope, that we often turn back to God. Remembering those verses we may have heard as a child, returning to our first love. Jonah did not seem to care for the distress of the sailors, but in his own distress, he called on the Lord. He remembered the Lord's compassion. And the beauty of God is that he doesn't hold it against Jonah. He doesn't say, oh, now you want to talk. God hears our rock-bottom prayers. He relents and he saves Jonah. He will relent and save us as well. Jonah needs a new heart, one that recognizes the need for rock-bottom prayers in everyday life, not just our greatest need. And so do you and I. As we've already mentioned, Jonah's actual preaching to the people of Nineveh after being vomited up onto the land is barely mentioned in the text. But what is mentioned is Nineveh's response, as we heard this morning. There is immediate and holistic repentance, mourning and a turning back to God. And God sees this repentance, and as verse 10 says, he relents. But then we come to today's reading, the climax of the book. It isn't Jonah in the whale. It isn't even Jonah finally listening to the word of the Lord preaching in Nineveh. Instead, it's Jonah sitting outside the city, arms folded, glaring at the repentant Ninevites, still hoping for disaster. It's in this scene that we get the clearest picture of Jonah's heart. We get insight into why he ran, why he is angry and depressed, and who he is at the core. Jonah ran from God in chapter 1 because he knew in chapter 4 God would forgive the Ninevites. He didn't want that. His heart had become completely calcified to the compassion of God for others. He saw the evil of Nineveh and considered them beyond God's love, unworthy of hope and repentance. The anger of Jonah is grounded in what we might call today prejudice. The God he rightly identifies as slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness isn't meant for others, only for him and for his people. Look at verse 2, chapter 4. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Shouldn't serving a God like that propel Jonah to to proclamation? Shouldn't it propel us to do the same? This is ultimately what the book of Jonah is wrestling with. Jonah represents in his actions the larger failure at this time of the divided kingdom of Israel. The children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were meant to be a light to the nations. They were meant to speak, to proclaim to the nations around them the truth of the living God. They were meant to be a nation turned outwards, a witness to the action and presence of God in our broken world. The book of Jonah brings this cultural mandate down to the level of an individual prophet. And in so doing, the book gives us insight into one of the many barriers to a missional orientation. 
our prejudiced, angry, and bitter hearts. Hearts that have grown cold to the things of God. Jonah is a warning to each of us, as, as the Proverbs say, to guard and tend to our hearts well. Don't let them grow bitter and cold. And the book kind of leaves us hanging with this warning. The book ends with the question of God. It just hangs in the air for the reader to ponder for themselves. Does Jonah have a right to be angry? Do you and I have a right to be angry? Are there people who you would rather not see experience God's mercy? We're called to love everyone, even our enemies. In this polarized time, it's easy for us to get angry. It's easy for us to be like Jonah. Maybe for you this morning, it's that mask that covers our face, that triggers anger and fatigue. Maybe it's the politics of it all. Maybe it's friends and family quick to argue over social media. It's easy for us to be angry. But the book of Jonah is not without hope. Jonah's anger throughout the text is overshadowed again and again by the compassion of God. We saw this on the boat, and we see it here in Nineveh as well. Despite Jonah's anger and reluctance, the people of Nineveh heard the message. We cannot hinder the forward motion of the love of God. Our bitter hearts will never be able to poison that river. And God's compassion exists not only for Nineveh, but for Jonah as well. And this, for me, is the greatest news of the book of Jonah. Despite all the Pharisee-like behavior and attitudes that Jonah exhibits throughout this book, God comes to him with a question, compassionate, curious, probing. He doesn't say, Jonah, you shouldn't be angry. Instead, he meets Jonah exactly where he is. A parable is created with the vine in order to elicit sympathy, empathy, and understanding and even starker mirror into Jonah's mindset. God comes down to the level of Jonah's broken and twisted heart and speaks directly to it because he knows what Jonah needs. He knows what we all need. This is what God does. He meets us in our most desperate need because ultimately we need a greater prophet than Jonah. One whose descent was not fleeing from God's presence, but a descent of obedience, a descent that brought God's presence into our muck and mess. We need a greater prophet who can silence the stormy waters with a word and whose rest on those stormy waters was not due to lack of care, but immense faith. We need a greater prophet who comes to the great city in humility, stretches out his arms in love as he longs to gather us back to himself. We need a greater prophet, the one who can claim the sign of Jonah for himself, dying and rising again. A greater prophet who can surgically remove from us the sins of our heart and cast them far from us. They are in the depths, but death spits us out into God's country. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory, that does this work, cleansing and ultimately giving us a new heart. And so we can close the book of Jonah with hope because the way forward is not to shame ourselves and beat ourselves up for the cobwebs and dusty corners of our heart. 
It's to lay them bare before Jesus. It's to accept the invitation to be questioned by God. Probing questions, yes, but always with compassion and curiosity. Do you have a right to be angry? In answering this question, we move towards the mess of our lives instead of running off to Tarshish. We invite God to clear out the prejudice and anger that still resides in each and every one of us. And as he does this work, we can more and more agree with Jonah's rock-bottom prayer. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen.